Let's talk about gravity. It's a constant. It affects everything and everyone. It's a relentless weight that never gives up in pulling us down. But gravity can be defeated. When a force is applied that is greater than the force of gravity, then and only then can we say that we are defining gravity. So ever since I was a kid, I have had a fascination with things that fly. Anybody else have a fascination with things that fly? And uh, I remember uh, several times, you know, having something like this. Did anybody have something like this? In a little balsa wood plane. And man, I can remember, these things, what, they cost a dollar or two, you know. But you can have hours and hours throwing this until finally one of the wings would break. And I think one of, the, one of the fascinations that I have with things that fly is that, really, it's an unnatural thing. I'm, I'm kind of this person, like, you know, most of us in this room, that's affected by something called gravity. Are you affected by gravity? I'm affected by gravity. And sometimes, I, I just have this this idea, this fascination, wouldn't it be cool if I could defy gravity? And from a very young age, I remember having a fascination with things that fly. You see, the thing about gravity is that it affects all of us. All of us are being affected by this force of gravity. None of us are immune to it. But gravity can be defeated. In fact, if you apply a force that's greater than the force of gravity then this plane could actually fly. But what happens if I just drop it? But this is not rocket science. What happens if I drop the plane? It's going to fall, okay? It's going to fall because it is being affected by gravity. But if I apply a force that's greater than the force of gravity, what's going to happen? I actually don't know what's going to happen. We're going to try it, though. I think it would be really neat if I could hit the back wall. But I don't know. We're going to try it. Warning, fair warning for anybody in this area right here. Just kind of get your hand up just a little bit, okay? We're going to apply a force that's greater than the force of gravity. Here it goes. Is it still flyable? No. Oh. And that's what, you, that's what you get. It's the come to the force of gravity. You know, I think... Webster's Dictionary defines gravity as the force that causes things to fall towards the earth. It's a no-brainer. It affects everybody. And during this series, we're going to be talking about gravity. But I want to—we're going to be actually talking about the the kinds of the, the areas in our lives where we feel the pull downwards. And there's lots of them. We're going to be exposing them over the, the course of the next few weeks. These are those areas in our lives that affect all of us, and they pull us down. And I think there's one source of gravity in a spiritual sense that maybe is the foundation of all of the other gravities, like it's the big one. And we're going to be talking about that one today, the big source of gravity in our spiritual lives, and it is 
selfishness. It's selfishness. Now, I think something that's interesting, and if you're a parent in the room, you have probably identified this as you have raised your kids. You didn't have to teach your kids how to be selfish, did you? Anybody have to teach your kids how to be selfish? I'm sure you didn't. I mean, imagine with me one of your kids when they were around, you know, two or maybe three, kind of that toddler age, and they have something that's, that, that is theirs, and they use a very particular, uh, a very specific word to define their thing. What is it? Mine. Mine. You never really had to teach your kid how to say that word, did you? Mine. What's interesting about toddlers and, and, and little children like that is they, they live by this rule that, that what yours, what's, what's yours is mine, and what's mine is mine. That's right. So if, if I have something, that's mine. But if you have something that I want, that's also mine. Until it breaks, and then it's yours, right? Until it breaks, and then it's yours. What's interesting is that um, we don't often grow out of this selfishness. In fact, those little toddlers that are selfish grow into children that are just as selfish. Uh, I don't know how many times, uh, you know, we, we'll have something, some kind of an argument. Our kids are having an argument. You go in there and, they, you know, they're just like wrestling over something. You go in there and let's say it's a rock, for example. It's just something just completely meaningless. It's a rock. And they're fighting over this rock. And it's like, there's a hundred thousand rocks out there. Just, I'll bring you a bag of rocks. Do you want some rocks? No. I want that rock. Why do you want that rock? Because it's mine. It's mine. I don't know how many fights have been caused because of that simple word, it's mine. And as adults, <laughs> we don't often get over this either. In fact, if you came here with the person that you're married to, you might just say, you know, you deal with this too, okay? Because we do. You know, I'll tell you, just a story from my life. This happens often at our house, where um, we'll be laying in bed, the kids are in bed, laying in bed watching something on TV, and I have the remote, and I have it on my channel. And something will happen, a commercial will come on, or somebody will text me, and so I'm looking at my phone, and then my wife, you know, obviously thinking, since I'm not actively watching what's on the TV, that she could change the channel... But what you didn't realize is that it's my show. It's my remote. It's my time. Drives me crazy. She would just know. When it's my time and my show is on, I want to watch my show. Why? Because it's my show. It's my time. It's my remote. I don't want to watch the Hallmark Channel anymore. Does that happen at your house? Uh, and interestingly enough, so you have these kids, you have these toddlers that are selfish, you don't have to teach them, they grow up to be children that are selfish, who grow up to be adults who are selfish, and then you gather those adults together, you know what you call that? A church. And I'm not joking, you folks. This is the gravity that every church feels as well. Have you seen this? I mean, have you experienced this? Maybe you've been a part of a church that... that 
you've seen this played out, where people are more concerned about um, having the music played in their own style than they are whether uh, you know, their neighbor knows about Jesus or not. Or whether the color of the carpet is the one that they want rather than you know, whether or not the person down the street ever gets to hear the good news of the gospel. See, it's the pull not only of each one of our lives, but this is the pull of every church as well. And during the, 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 the course of this series, we are identifying these sources of gravity and we're asking the question, how can we defy it? How can we overcome it? And I think um, the simple answer is we have to come up, we have to find a source that's greater than the source of gravity. But lest you misunderstand me here, I'm not talking just about behavioral modifications. I'm not just talking about being better. I'm talking about tapping into the power of Christ to overcome these areas of gravity in our lives. This is the, the, the good news that we get to hear today is that the selfishness that, that we feel as individuals, as we feel as parents and as we feel as a church, it can be overcome. It can be overcome. And we can do that. But there's only one way that, that that can happen, and that's through the power of Christ. Now, by way of introduction, from the very beginning, this gravity of selfishness has existed. From the very beginning of creation. In fact, when you, when you open the scripture and you begin to read from the very beginning, we, we discover very quickly... This simple truth that God has every right to be selfish. And what I mean by that is that God is supreme. He's holy. Uh, there's no one greater. No one more powerful. If anyone has the right to have all of the attention on him, to, to, to get everything for him, and to never, uh, never release any of his glory or any of his fame to anyone else. It's God. God has every right to be selfish, yet he is a giver. You see that? God has every right to be selfish, yet he is a giver. And I imagine you could probably fill in the next blanks without me telling you what those are. But the opposite is true of us, that we have no right to be selfish, Yet, we are takers. And you see this from the very beginning. In fact, you know, the pages of Scripture opens. In the beginning, God created. He gave. He didn't have to. This was a gift. And so, as you think about the mountains and the streams and the elk and the leaves changing and the seasons and the stars, God gave that as a gift. And in the middle of that, He places... People that he created. He gives us this gift of creation. God gives that to us. But men, from the very beginning, in fact, uh, in Genesis chapter 3, we read the first sin of man. We call that the fall. And interestingly enough, the first sin of man, though it was a rebellious act, was actually rooted in selfishness. Did you know that? Check this out from Genesis chapter 3. 
verses 4 through 6, Satan is, is talking to Eve and he's trying to tempt her to eat the tree, to eat from the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says that you will not certainly die. He's, he's deceiving her. He's lying to her because God said you can eat from any tree in the garden except for that tree or you're going to die. But Satan says, oh, you, you won't certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. Did you hear that? It was also desirable for gaining wisdom. She said, yeah, I want some of that. All this death stuff, all about destroying the whole plan of God, all of this. No, what I really want is I want some of that. I want some of that. It's desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took some and she ate it and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And so this first act of sin, of disobeying God, was rooted in this selfishness of wanting to be like God. Wanting to have the wisdom and the knowledge and understanding of God. And ever since then, all of us, I can say with confidence, everyone in this room, including myself, is selfish. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because all sinned. So just like Adam and Eve, in, that, in the very beginning, their sin was rooted in selfishness. All of us are tainted with that same prideful, self-centered spirit. And if that wasn't happy enough for you, <laughs> the entire world is infected with that. Have you noticed this? Have you noticed that you know, if you were to just pick one word that would describe the country that we live in and the, the, the attitude of, I, I want more, I need more, this never satisfied type of attitude, you know, I need more money, I need a new thing, my house isn't nice enough, I need the new piece of technology, I, I need, I need, I need, doesn't it remind you, going clear back to those toddlers, mine, mine, me, me, mine. Adam calls this the me monster. And I think all of us fight the me monster. Well, in this series, um, we want to take a look at uh, instances in the Bible where we can see people who defy gravity. People who defy these, these poles on their lives. And when it comes to defying selfishness, people who just exemplified unselfishness, who comes to your mind from the Bible? Jesus, right. Jesus is the ultimate example of unselfishness. And I would love to, I would love to spend the morning talking about about the unselfishness of Christ, and if, if that's something that you would like to study some more, I would encourage you, you need to read the book of Philippians. Because in there, it talks about the unselfishness of Christ and how our attitude should be like Christ. But there's a group of people uh, in, the, in the book of Acts, as the church is beginning to unfold, as the New Testament church is just starting it's just developing. Jesus is just resurrected from the dead. 
And today I want to look at this group of, of people from the book of Acts, this early church. And I want to look at specifically this one little section where we see them defying gravity like crazy. And I hope that at the end of this we can pull some application for our own life and we can find a, you know, steps that we can take so that we can begin to defy the gravity of selfishness in our own lives. So I'd invite you to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, there's, there's this passage at the very end. And some people have said that, that this passage in Acts chapter 2 is the best description of what the church ought to be like. They say, you know, read the end of Acts chapter 2, because that is, that's what every church should be striving towards in terms of what we want to be like as a church. And while I think it's a good picture of what the church should be like, I don't think it's the best picture. And so we're going to read this, uh, this little passage, and then I'll explain to you why I think it's wrong, okay? Why I don't think this is the best picture. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. It starts off with the word they, and it's talking about all of these new believers, okay, these new people that, are, that, that call themselves followers of Christ, and they're now beginning to meet together, okay? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And all of the believers were together and had everything in common. And selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Can you just scan through that and pick out some unselfish phrases from that little passage? That's a huge one, isn't it, Mick? They sold all of their possessions. Now that is, that's crazy. When was the last time that, that that was happening, where people were just like, oh, you got a need? I'll just go sell a bunch of my stuff so that I can give you my money. How un-American is that? There's, there, there's other things. They, they, they met together. Every day, it says. They were going to church to listen to somebody teach about the Bible every day. Just a little caveat. Have you noticed that oftentimes um, in your life, you, you prioritize your schedule around what? Around what's convenient. Uh, sometimes, you're, you know, you've got ten different choices on what to do, and, and you're, you're choosing things based on, on what is the best for you, on what is the best for your kids, on what's the best for your family, you know, those kinds of things. These people, they threw the whole schedule. They took a whole schedule, wadded it up, threw it away, and said, this is our schedule. We're going to go to church. That's it. How radical is that? How unselfish. It says that they ate together in their homes. They were sharing food together. It says that they, they were... Uh, had everything in common. They were sharing possessions. They were, somebody had a need, they would share it with someone else. And it, 
it ends by this interesting statement. It says, The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That's a beautiful picture of the church. But I don't think it's the best picture of the church. And let me tell you why. There's one thing that's missing from this picture in Acts chapter 2 of this early church. And when I say that you're going to, it might be shocking, but there's one thing that I think is missing that's a key ingredient for us today, and that is trouble, hardship, persecution. See, as the church starts here in Acts chapter 2, this is a wonderful thing, but guess what? They're doing this, and there's no trouble. Nobody's knocking at their door, dragging people out to jail for meeting together yet. That will come. But right now, everything's great, and people see this, and it's very attractive, and they want to be a part of it, but there's, there's no trouble. Now, why do I say that's important? Because we live in a world that is full of trouble. And from this moment on, this is the only picture of the church that's not surrounded by trouble. This is the only picture in Scripture of, of the church in, until you get to the book of Revelation when we're all in heaven singing and gathered around the throne of God. But this is the only picture of the church in all of Scripture that is without trouble. And that's what's so interesting because we're going to be becoming upon a picture of the church that I think is even more beautiful than the one in Acts chapter 2. And to get there, we have to go through Acts chapter 3. All right? I'm just going to summarize for you a bit about Acts chapter 3. Peter and John are on their way to the temple to worship the Lord. And on their way there, they have to pass by this beggar who is on the side of the road. It's a man who's crippled. It says specifically that he was crippled from birth. And it says that his friends would take him outside of the temple so that he could beg for money and food from those who were going into the temple to pray. And as Peter and John pass by, this man asks them for some money. And they're faced with a decision. And that decision really comes down to, are we going to do something about this, or are we going to keep walking by? It's been a very easy decision for them to just ignore it, to keep their eyes away, just keep walking, go into the temple, do their thing. It's interesting that it says that every day or each day um, his friends would put him here. And so chances are, you know, hundreds of people would walk past this man every day. And so it would be very easy. You, can, you and I can come up with a hundred reasons why we could rationalize not stopping and helping this man. But Peter and John stop. And if you, if you read the story, they, they say, well, silver and gold, we don't have. We don't have any of that. But what we do have, we want to share with you. We want to give it to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And they extend their hand down to the guy and they help him up and he walks. It's a miracle. This man who was crippled from birth is now, it says he's leaping and he's praising the Lord. And so this causes a stir. This causes a, you know, this is kind of a big thing. What has just happened? And they go in the, in, into the temple. This man is praising the Lord, and everybody's like, wait, isn't that the guy that was, that was outside? He's, he's that crippled guy that we pass by every day. And here he is, he's praising the Lord. What has happened? And Peter has an opportunity, and there are certain moments, I think, in our lives that hold more weight 
than others. There's certain moments in our lives where, you know, the decision that we make is really going to alter the course of how a lot of things are going to play out. I think Peter comes to one of those moments here inside the temple court. And the reason why I think it's such a big moment is because it's going to draw the attention of a lot of people. He's been given a platform here. A man has been healed. It's a very public miracle. And he has the the platform now to determine how people are going to interpret what has just happened. Now, if Peter... Uh, if I'm Peter and I'm putting myself in his shoes, there's probably a lot of things that would go through my mind. One would be, I have a really good thing going with this new church. You know, all these people, they're gathering. It's safe. It's awesome. People are being added to our number daily as they're being saved. This is a really dynamic, awesome thing that's happening. If I'm Peter, the thought is at least going through my mind, gosh, I should really keep my mouth shut and not draw attention to this cool thing that God's doing. It's at least got to be going through his mind. But Peter has this platform, and instead of playing it safe, he risks it. And he preaches a sermon, you can read it in Acts chapter 3. Starting in verse 11, he, he preaches this sermon, and guess what? He is very pointed. And he puts his finger, basically, in the chest of the Jewish religious leaders, and he says, this man was healed... By the power of the risen Christ, whom you crucified. And he points to them. But God raised him from the dead. And it's by that power that this man has been healed. And as you can imagine, this didn't sit very well with the Jewish religious leaders. And in chapter 4... Peter and John are arrested and they're taken before the Jewish ruling council to decide their punishment. And here they are in chapter 4 before Caiaphas and John and Alexander, it says, and uh, and all the high priests. This is a big deal. They've brought in the big guns. They're going to try and shut these guys down. But look at verse 16 of chapter 4. It says, This is the Jewish religious leaders. They're asking the question, what are we going to do with these men? They ask. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows that they have done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak and teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. Another very courageous statement. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Verse 21. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to, pun- how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Now this is really interesting. Because remember how I said Acts chapter 2 is a beautiful picture of the church, but it's not the most beautiful picture of the church? I think that Acts chapter 4 starting in verse 23, is the most beautiful picture of the church in all of Scripture. 
Why? Because Peter and John have just been threatened. These leaders, you know, they're... Their lives were threatened. They were, uh, you know, potentially could have been thrown into prison or even to make a statement to all these other Christians that were rising up. They could have executed them. It was a, it was a terrible thing, but they, they didn't. They released them. Peter and John go back to their, their, their new little church, and guess what they do? Let's read this together. Verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his Holy One. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord... Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. It's often been said that you can tell a lot about a person by the way that they pray. I think you can tell a lot about a church by the way that it prays too. And I think we can see a lot about the DNA, the heartbeat of this early church through this word, this phrase. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. See, I'm not sure that, not sure that I could always say that I would pray that. I think oftentimes I would say, Lord, consider your threat, their threats and please keep me safe. You know? Lord, con- consider, consider their threats and please change their mind. But they say, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. And all the believers were one in heart and mind, verse 32. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything that they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands and houses sold them, and they brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Friends, I think that is the most beautiful picture of the church in all of Scripture. And it's not much different from the the one in Acts chapter 2, except for this one is in the face of great persecution. And they're still making decisions 
to put others' needs in front of their own, and to live in a way that defies the gravity of selfishness. I think there's three observations that I'll make about this passage. One is that they were gripped by a greater mission. They were gripped by a greater mission. So I think our natural mission as people, and you, if, uh, you can remember back to the time before you knew Christ as your Savior, you would say this was your mission. You can think about people who are far from Christ and this would be their mission. It's about their glory, their fame, their accumulation, their wealth, their happiness. These are the things that, that drive us outside of Christ. It's the mission of our lives. And given just the forces of gravity, this becomes the pull of every church and every person, even after we know Christ. We're drawn towards this selfishness. So what, what kept this early church from being drawn in with this force of gravity? They were gripped by a greater mission. The, their prayer in saying, Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. That is an insight into what was driving these people. They wanted the world to know the resurrected Christ. That Jesus had come and that he had died for their sins and that he had risen from the grave. And this was the drive, the passion of their life. And this early church, even in the face of, of great opposition, was gripped by a mission that was greater than the me monster. They were gripped by this mission of making Christ known. Secondly, they understood that it was no longer I, but we. See, I, I think in our own lives, you know, when we, when we feel the pull of gravity and we feel the me monster fighting us, okay, that this is, a, uh, this is a, an inward-focused life, that it's all about me and it's all about my happiness. But when we lift our eyes towards a greater vision, we see that, hey, there's a lot of other people that my life is affecting. And guess what? If we all get together and if we all rally around this mission... We are way better together than we are as individuals. Christ died for me, yeah, but he died for us. And this church got this. This group of people figured this out. And those same things that we noticed in Acts chapter 2, the unselfish words, how they were selling their possessions and giving them to to those who had need, how how these people were meeting together in their homes and how they were uh, learning and growing together as followers of Christ. All of those things are happening, but this time there's cost, there's risk involved. Number three, another observation, is that they redefined what success was and they aimed for it. See, if Peter and John had been driven by, you know, success being, let's get a bunch of people together. If that was their definition of success, do you think that they would have been risking it before the Sanhedrin in their responses? No. They would have been playing it safe. But they were being driven by a definition of success that had nothing to do with the size of their church congregation. It had everything to do with making the name of Jesus known. And so for them, as they pursued that mission, it brought risk, it brought danger, it often brought, you know, hardship, hard things that you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. 
But it was worth it. Why? Because they were pursuing a greater mission. So that brings us to you and I. And I think on a very personal level, I think all of us have some takeaways from this in our own individual lives. And I think as we, as we work together as individuals on this, if we seek to defy gravity in the relationships that, that matter to us most in our families, our friends, the people that we work with, excuse me, it not only changes those relationships, but it affects us as a whole. If all of us together are seeking to defy gravity in our own lives, our church is going to look differently. Application number one, I think, is identify what is making you selfish. We've got to identify what's making you selfish. And I think this could be different for, for lots of people in the room. You know, what, what is that thing that's driving selfishness? But might I also suggest that apart from Christ that it's impossible to live a completely selfless life. You know how we said that, you know, to defy gravity, you have to, you have to put, uh, you know, a greater amount of energy, a greater amount of power, force, into an object than the force of gravity before it can defy gravity. That power and that source doesn't come from us. It's not a try harder kind of a thing. The power and the source comes from God. I want to have you turn to the book of Romans. I think it's going to be on the screen here too. Romans chapter 8 talks about this phenomena. Romans chapter 8, verse 6 says, The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, talking to the the Roman believers, he says, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. And so if you're asking the question, you know, what is making me selfish? How can I identify the root of my selfishness? Where does that come from? I think you at least have to throw on the table, have I trusted Christ as my Savior? Is the Spirit living inside of me? Because if it's not, friends, it says that the mind of sinful man is death. You can't defy gravity without the power of Christ in you. Second application is... To ask God to change your heart. Ask God to change your heart. And this goes for everybody. In Psalm chapter 119, verses 36 and 37, it says, Turn my heart toward your statutes and not toward selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. I think that's a beautiful prayer. To turn our hearts towards God, towards His statutes, towards His Word, and away from selfless gain. I think an application that that I would challenge you with is to, to, to pray that prayer from Psalm 119 every day. Lord, turn 
myself towards you, towards your statutes and away from selfish gain and see how that might change the course of your days. And finally, number three, look for opportunities to be unselfish. Got to look for them. Remember, this is not a natural thing. The natural thing is the, the, the pull of gravity in each one of our lives. But we need to look for opportunities to be unselfish. So, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should, not, should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And I think the key word in this whole verse that often just gets overlooked is the word look. In verse 4, the word look, it's an action, it's a verb, it's, it's something we should do. Each of you should look, you should do this. Look, I think it's an intentional opening our eyes, seeing the needs around us. You need to look at how you can not only serve your own interests, but also the interests of others. And I think in, in, in my life, this really starts with my wife and my children. You know, this really starts with, uh, all right, honey, here's the remote. I think it really starts with, uh, when I get home, instead of just going and plopping down in the easy chair and, and picking up the, the magazine, it, it may mean to spend some time shooting hoops with my kids in the front yard. Yeah. Yeah. I think it really is one of those, uh, those intentional... Look not only to my own interest. Okay, I'm, I want to do that. I want to look at others. How can I best serve my family? So it might mean, you know, helping to pick up the house before we go to bed. So it, it, it starts off the day with a fresh new house. Or, you know, I've, I've often said that, that my wife, uh, I'm, I'm married way out of my league and I'm such a lucky guy because she doesn't, she's not like, um, she doesn't really desire flowers and chocolates and those kinds of things. It's more meaningful to her if I put on the rubber gloves and scrub the toilet. Now, truth be told, she would actually like both of those things, but it's an excuse for me only I have to do one. But I need to do that, and you need to do that. What are those ways that we can get out of the me monster and we can intentionally serve others? And then what, does, what would that look like if... If a bunch of people, if a bunch of us decided that we were going to let that overflow into our church and to not be sucked into the me monster that affects us as a church as well. You know, it might mean, you, you hear opportunities oftentimes. You know, we need volunteers for Kids Zone or we need volunteers for the nursery or for youth ministry. It might mean actually serving in one of those ways. It might mean actually talking to that person and saying, how could I help you in youth ministry? Or how could I help you? Do you have some needs? Could I maybe do some nursery work? For others, it, it might mean you know, serving in a water or teaching a Sunday school class or joining a small group. Or uh, maybe it means 
to continue to, to practice the art of neighboring that we've been talking about for the last few weeks. And maybe you went through that series and you had some ideas, but you never followed through. Could it be that as a church, one of the biggest um, steps that we could take forward as a congregation would for each one of us to take seriously putting someone else's needs before our own. So uh, as we close the service, I'm going to invite the worship team to, to come up, Megan and the team. and um, We're going to close the service with a song, but as they come, I, I'm going to challenge you to take one action. What is one thing that you can do this week that would take a step towards defying the gravity of selfishness in your life. Maybe you can identify that right now. Maybe you need to write yourself a note or send yourself a reminder on your phone or something like that. Talk with somebody. Say, hey, could you call me on Tuesday and ask me how I'm doing in this area? What is one thing that you can do this week to begin to defy the gravity of selfishness in your own life? As Megan, the, Megan and the team lead us here, the ushers are going to come and they're going to pass the offering plate. And please remember to drop those connect cards in the offering plate as it goes by. I'll invite you to stand to your feet as well as we uh, close with this final song.